Hello everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams D Podcast, where we spin the jams and spill the tea, and this week we're coming at you with two brand new reviews for two brand new records. Today we're going to be talking about the long-awaited follow-up to his debut process. We're going to be talking about the sophomore album from Samfa Lahai, and we're also going to be talking about the new project from one Miss. Kristen Hader, formerly of Lingua Ignota. We're going to be talking about Reverend Kristen Michael Hader's new album, Saved. Yeah, I think that every time we say the name of that record, we're going to have to like say it in that tonality with that gesture. It's the only bold way. italics exclamation point. Say Kristen Michael Hader's album, Saved. You have to say Reverend Kristen Michael Hader's album, Saved. Saved. That's the official way of putting it. Yes, but we'll get to that because that's a very interesting record that uh, will take quite a bit of unpacking. But let's talk about Samfa first. I've been really pumped for this Samfa album. Really looking forward to it. And it did not disappoint. I'll establish some groundwork in case there's anyone out there who's maybe not that familiar with Samfa. Uh, Samfa is a a British R&B artist who established a long career of collaborations and vocal assists and production assists for a number of huge artists, an incredibly talented and multi-talented individual who had his fingers in a lot of different pies before setting out a solo career, originally came to fame uh, with early vocal features on tracks from the uh, electronic artists Subtract, also came to prominence with some pretty big cosigns and features on songs from Drake and Beyonce in 2013. We talked about uh, in, an, in one of our now episodes this year, we talked about uh, Drake's Nothing Was the Same. And I gave a very strong shout out to the song Too Much on that record, which is not only my favorite Drake song, but has an incredible feature from Sampha that to me is a huge part of what makes it what it is. Uh, Sampha also appeared on Beyonce's Self Titled, has multiple credits as a producer and performer on the first FKA Twigs album, had a really Probably one of his biggest and most famous features was on the song St. Pablo off of Kanye West, The Life of Pablo. Like with the Drake album, I think that the Sampa song on that record is my favorite song on that record as well. He just elevates everything that he's within or peripheral to. He also had a pretty notable feature as a writer and vocalist on Solange's A Seat at the Table. So there you go, two of the biggest albums of 2016 Sampa was a notable part of. And so finally with that groundswell of hype underneath them came 2017's Process, which was Sampha's solo debut. An incredible record. I think one of the best albums of 2017, quite possibly the album I listened to the most in that year that came out that year because it came out fairly early and I became fixated on it pretty quickly. And it just became a part of the background of that year for me. It's an incredible album, beautifully produced and breathtaking, a really sharp and gorgeous sound r&b record flecked with soul flecked with electronic garage sounds flecked with pop there's a lot of dexterity in that record and to me it holds up as one of the greatest solo debuts of the 2010s as well as just a fantastic album all around a record that to me has only gotten better with time as well just immaculately put together and it's been a really long wait for Sampha to follow it up. I mean, he's continued in his collaborations. He was on the second Solange album, When I Get Home. He's continued to collaborate with artists like Serpent With Feet. He was on Serpent With Feet's album, Deacon. He was most notably on 
Kendrick Lamar's album, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. He had the vocal lead on the song Father Time. And so all, throughout all of this, I've been just absolutely frenzied for a new Sampha album for the follow-up to process. And it has taken six years, but we are here with Lahai, which is um, Sampha's own middle name which signals how much this record is going to be rooted very clearly in who Sampha is, Sampha's identity at this particular point in time. Um, for those of you who don't know, Process is an album that's really wrecked in grief. I mean, a lot of it's written about the passing of his parents, a particularly difficult place in Sampha's life that he was at, trying to figure out what the future was for him and dealing with a lot of bubbling insecurities and uncertainties in his life. Um, Process is a record that I think has moments of great catharsis, but is largely rooted in that tension of being in that difficult space uh, in the wake of something tragic, but before you're on the other side of it. And, and that's one of the things that makes it so powerful. Lahai is very different. Lahai is, by comparison to Process, a much more carefree album, a record that to me is a lot more joy inside of it, has a lot more celebration inside of it, has a lot more comfort inside of it. In the time that this album was originally conceptualized, Sanford became a father as well and so a lot of the record is about reckoning with the new position that he's in as a father considering the legacy of generations from his grandparents through his parents through to the new generation that he's birthed as well being grateful for the particular position that he's at and the stability that he has at that particular point in time and if a record about being grateful and stable sounds boring to you then you don't need to go much further than just listening to the first few songs on this record to get a sense of how animated, energetic, colorful, and full of life the music itself actually is. It is far from complacent. It is just sizzling with energy and creativity and colorful arrangements. It's an impressive record to say the least. Sampha's not only a fantastic producer, but he's really great at arranging. And obviously his voice precedes him. He's an absolutely arresting vocal performance. Um, Jake is someone who's a little bit newer to South, who's come in, you know, and the around surrounding the the swell of hype around this particular record. What's your take on Sampha? Um, what do you enjoy about his music, and what do you think of this new album? Broadly speaking, it's difficult to not go. I like the way this man sings, and just kind of leave it at that. I didn't pay attention uh, to Sampha's career super duper closely up until this point. Like I had recognized him on things like uh, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers albums and songs that I've heard, but not someone who I've like paid close attention to. And honestly, that's on me just because I know Process was a, a big album when it came out, an anticipated record that did very well, both like critically and with the general public. Um, so I got to correct that error and listen to that. I am immensely impressed with his debut project, his arresting voice, his incredibly personable lyricism that explores some grief, some personal darkness, uh, a bit of his, you know, his history and songs like uh, No One Knows Me Like the Piano, for instance. Uh, it's a really tight record. It's also a really lush one, too. It's easily one of the better sounding albums from that year. Uh, and I was just like, wow, this is so absolutely my shit. I hate myself for only getting around to this now. So naturally, I was like, OK, new albums being received super duper well right off the back of this. 
let's go. Let's listen to this. So I had a kind of a high expectation of just like, I want to see where Sanfa grows from here. But at the same time, I don't want to hold him to too high of a standard because yeah, it has been six years since his last album. So I kind of feel like that sort of strong artistic continuity, you know, time is going to inevitably make all things wane. So at the same time, I wanted to be reasonable hype wise, but I, I still wanted to be like, I want to see where his trajectory blossoms out from here. And with Lahai, I get basically everything I could have wanted with an album that measures up to the debut in basically every single way. This is very, very similar to the last record in terms of sound. But Sanfa's sound is so all-encompassing and versatile that I have no problem with how generally similar this is to the last record. To me, the record really properly starts with the song Spirit 2.0, which one of the best songs of the year for me. Like, absolutely head and shoulders, my favorite thing on this album. Not that it's star not start for competition. There are plenty of songs on here that are of at least comparable quality. But from this moment forward, when I hear that incredibly satisfying electronic drum production that Sampha's got throughout over the course of both of these albums, it's positively sumptuous sounding. Everything about this is so inviting. In terms of like writing, I feel like Lahai is maybe a slightly more more focused effort, an album about personal growth, an album that's obviously trying to mature both artistically, but also personally. I, I feel like that's very well represented in Sampha's lyricism, which is probably something that I've seen talked about a lot less than I would have figured. I mean, like, obviously, the sound is a huge part of what makes Sampha a fantastic artist, but I was just taken off guard by how much these two albums really hit me, emotionally speaking. I feel like there is a sense of motivation in Lahai, almost a sense of wanting to prove oneself, uh, not just because he's holding himself to maybe a slightly higher standard because of his new status as being a father, something like that, but I almost feel like I'm listening to someone who very much knows that they have a lot of expectations on their sophomore record uh, and has a lot of hype behind this and doesn't want to disappoint. And I can't really think of much that sounds like this. I keep hearing comparisons to people like Frank Ocean, for instance, which I don't think are totally unfounded. But again, there's it, it's six of one half dozen of the other. Sampa's such a singular presence on these records that it feels wrong or disingenuous to just pigeonhole him as being a part of one genre or similar to one given artist. So that's the most satisfying thing that I've gotten out of these two records is that for as many of his contemporaries as he might resemble, I don't think there's anyone doing what Sampha is doing on these two records right now. In terms of comparisons, the one that I feel came up the most in 2017 not an unfounded one, but I do think one that's slightly, well, it certainly doesn't capture the fullness of the difference between the two is that James Blake came up a lot in early discussions. Yeah. 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 And to be fair, what that's rooted in is understandable. There's a very similar, there's a not dissimilar approach to this kind of garage inflected, very sort of uh, slick and angular and sort of airtight production that they're both very, very good at that plays a lot with space. And also, within that the presence of a somewhat neurotic but very soulful 
performer who is bearing a lot of you know the darkest aspects of their lives to kind of work through that in the process of their music and i think that is a fair way of describing both sampha's early music and james blake's early music um, but that is kind of where the comparison ends you know the other comparison that i thought of um, and this is more to do with the fact that these two artists kind of came up around the same time, have a sort of similar sound, and released their debut album in 2017 and their follow-up album this year. And that's Kalila, who's, and again, a part of this is her 2017 album, Take Me Apart, uh, which, yeah, again, was her solo debut after a kind of groundswell of hype surrounding her early releases, was another very energetic very dance music influenced electronic album with a lot of kind of 90s sort of and 2000s garage influence into it a record i absolutely love spent a lot of time listening to that year as well and again it was another case of, of waiting six years for her to follow that up with this year's raven which i talked about earlier in the year and you know i don't want to labor the comparison too much because this is really just a comparison that's come out out of circumstance more so than sound but Kalila came back and her record this year was very muted very kind of relaxed offered a much kind of mellower and more comfortable take on where Kalila was at it's a almost a more ambient sounding record very much so compared to Take Me Apart and what's interesting about Sampha with this record is that to me I see a parallel in terms of where these artists were at at these particular points and times and maybe the uh, emotional tone of these solo debuts and sophomore projects is quite similar but the difference is that Lahai has no less energy and no less dynamism and no less complexity for lack of a better word than the the debut album did and that's not the you know, talk down on Raven for being a much more stripped back album. I think that suits what it's doing. But with Lahai, you have a vision, as I kind of said earlier, of of Sampha in a much more comfortable place and a much more stable place. I mean, this is the thing. If you want to look at Sampha's lyricism and go back to process, as I kind of forecasted earlier, that's a really uh, fraught album. You know, Sampha's going through and processing a lot of really traumatic stuff on that record. And the lyricism really stands out about that. And one of the reasons I think that album is a masterpiece is because, you know, it is formally and in terms of music and production, it is astounding, but it is also a really striking and gripping album in terms of the lyricism as well. You know, songs like Plastic 100 Degrees, songs like Blood on Me, No One Knows Me Like the Piano, Under, Incomplete Kisses, those are great songs uh, that sound incredible and have a massively enveloping atmospheres but also have these really striking stories that Sampha's telling you about where he's at in his life and the various things that are kind of chasing him and haunting him and the wonderful success of Lahai is that he seems to have processed and been able to come to terms with in a healthy way all of those things yet the record is no less gripping and the record is no less interesting in its songwriting for Sampha having you know overcome those trials it shows that what makes Sampha an interesting songwriter isn't rooted in his ability to you know capture the the dark and ugly things that are going on in his life it's just how good of a writer he is how good he is at putting you into his state of mind and capturing the way things are for him basically and how he has in this instance 
developed his life to be put in a position where he has all the things that he needs to be able to be stable and secure. It's not perfect. And there are still aspects of his life that feel precarious as you get uh, in a song like Suspended, for instance. But there is a lot of dom domestic bliss and um, comfort and family that comes through on this record in a huge way. Both the immediate family that Samba has created for himself with his partner and child, but also in the continuing presence of the family past you know the 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 family that are no longer with him you know there's his parents and his grandparents who have passed away who mm -hmm. continue to be a presence in his life as comes through in a song like spirit 2.0 and other songs in the record as well rhythmically and musically and, and this is the thing right is um samfa is comfortable but he still lives a life where a lot of things have to be held in balance you know he's a parent so he's has more responsibility and more of a role in his life than he's ever had before in terms of things that people are looking to him for and things that he's responsible for and he does a great job i think of musically translating the the constant presence of things in his life that he's in orbit or that are in orbit around him with the way that this record works rhythmically. And I think a lot of it comes from what you were talking about in terms of his very kind of sharp uh, approach to uh, electronic percussion, which was a great feature of process. And I would say is kind of even more pronounced and intricate here in an almost kind of glitchy way, which I really love. Um, So you have that kind of tense, consistent sort of, PP drums that come through, especially on the, some of those early tracks like Spirit 2.0, like Dancing Circles and Suspended, for instance. And they do a great job of like audibly portraying those aspects of, of Sanfa's life that he has to work to keep in balance. Or another thing that's worth mentioning in terms of uh, the rhythmic approach to this record as well is that Sanfa was very heavily influenced by the West African folk subgenre of Vasulu, uh, which has a really strong rhythmic focus and a lot of the intricacy in the way that the rhythms are arranged on these songs. And what I would describe as an almost kind of like delicate tension that never feels like uh, negative or or toned with darkness it just is like an energetic peepiness that keeps the songs kind of active and and busy but never like in a way that makes you feel like uh uncomfortable just in a way that kind of keeps you stimulated and that's one of the things i love so much about the record is that there's this constant feeling of stimulation that comes through in the arrangements of these songs for me uh the the, the master work here is dancing circles which is an incredible example of this delicate balance of assured comfort in the arms of, of a loved one that you're dancing with, but this kind of tension that's overlaid through it, the sense with which you have to make all the steps with this person. You have to kind of land each move. You know, the dance is a moment of connection between you and another person, but it is also a mission that you're engaged with, with that person where you have a shared goal that you're in pursuit of that requires you to hit the mark. And that idea explored lyrically, but equally you know, complemented by a, a musical arrangement with these electronic drums and piano that make you feel that it, it's like, it's, it's masterful. It's just an absolutely fantastic 10 out of 10 marriage of, of lyricism and sound. And it's a perfect example of, of what makes Sanfa such a masterful producer, songwriter, creator, artist. Um, and the record has 
that level of density all throughout it. And Samfers described his approach uh, to like building sounds, like to sound design in his songs as very impressionistic, which I understand, right? It has the kind of, you know, audio equivalent of a kind of impressionist painting where everything is just kind of yeah. detail that's, um, you know, that you kind of see the bigger picture when you kind of step back and see how the, the different flecks kind of blend together. Um, another reference point is the Richard Bach novella, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which is mentioned mm-hmm. multiple times uh, on this album. You know, a, a story of, of self-actualization and self-determination, realizing your potential when you're within the context of an environment that maybe isn't conducive to that. And so I don't know to what extent uh, Sarfa sees an analog between himself and that story, but it's a thread that comes through as well. This, there's a lot of mention of of birds and flight and sort of being, I suppose, untethered in that sense, which is interesting to me because so much of the record is about the domestic life, which is very tethered, which is very kind of grounded. And yet it's complemented by this, by these references to flying and references to, um, you know, being a bird or or imagining yourself um, free in that way. Maybe it's Sampa's way of saying, you know, I am, I do have all of these domestic ties, but it doesn't make me feel any less free. I'm not quite sure, but I, I love the ideas that are in, in that. They, they jump out to me, even if I don't immediately understand how all of them fit together. Yeah. Any other kind of songs or aspects of the album like that, that kind of leap out to you or that you've kind of been struck by and listening to it? There's kind of a malleability to a lot of the writing on here where he kind of keeps alluding to things like the, uh, the 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 seagull the bird and it kind of gives me the impression that Sampha is simultaneously grateful for a lot of the stability that he's encountered since process or at least seemingly so but at the same time maybe is a little bittersweet I guess about some of the freedoms perhaps that he had to sacrifice which to me like all of these constant references to like other things like it it gives everything here a dimensionality that is very very easy to engage with considering how wizened Samfa's perspective actually sounds you can feel the growth of six years worth of time passing just because it feels a little bit less maybe myopic than process which is a strength of that record for an album that feels like it's designed to make you feel comfort to some degree while listening to it, it basically invites you to kind of gestate in it and just sort of explore these spaces that Zamfa creates, which sounds a little bit pretentious, but when it comes to the actual like sound design of his records, I haven't felt like this privileged to hear an album since like the last war on drugs record because like it's just one of those musical experiences where it's so finely tuned and so singular that you just feel kind of grateful that it's a allowed to exist and b that you get to hear it and that's just something that i find continuously rewarding about sampa's work is that there is a kind of 
darker, uglier underbelly to a lot of what he talks about, both in what he says and both in what is unsaid, that makes it very emotionally complicated. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, at least from a sonic perspective, Lahai is a little tiny bit more ambitious than Process. I'm not exactly certain which of the two records I prefer, just because in theory, I like a lot of disparate things about these records, despite a lot of their sonic similarities. But I guess, like, the, to me, this new album really feels like he's drawing from, I guess, more fringe appeals. Uh, something like uh, Tom York's solo work was something that I kept frequently thinking of. What I, I think my biggest point for comparison is an album that I love very, very dearly, uh, Moses Sumney's Grey. Um, I kept coming back to that comparison over and over again in my head and that like both from like a vocal standpoint and from a production standpoint, it's just like the result of this incredible polymath who's multi-talented and manages to execute all of these disparate ideas in ways that feel like they are cohesive despite how you know, off the wall they can be. And this is the kind of thing that I'm looking for in modern neo-soul. And I, honestly, I've just been spending the vast majority of this week kicking myself for not having gotten to Sampha sooner because I remember when the, I think when Spirit 2.0 was released, we talked about, uh, you know, Sampha being back in our new now episode. And I was just like, oh yeah, I should probably get to him. And I, I feel like a fucking fool for waiting until the new album came out this is a uh a, a psa for all of those who wonder just anytime riley recommends an album just fucking listen to it well i mean i that's very very <laughs> um yeah you won't fight me much on that one a big part of me you know from going from initially wrestling with what is Santa trying to say with this record what is the tone Santa's trying to convey what's what's actually coming through in these songs a big part of that process of me kind of um recognizing that and realizing that the record is as comfortable as it is because okay initially when i first listened to this there were moments that really struck me as feeling more tense and potentially you know potentially racked with some kind of neurosis and those were particularly songs like suspended can't go back in evidence um mm -hmm. but i think i kind of misread these songs initially because all three of these songs feature a very prominent like repetition of the core titular phrases that are, yeah. are kind of like layered really really quickly across the song like almost obtrusively and like in the case of, of can't go back i kind of almost read the re repetitive um iterations of the title of the song as kind of like an intrusive thought that was kind of pulling something mm -hmm. down and with suspended especially which is i think the song that uses these repetitions vocally in the most kind of dynamic and strange way the way that you have these overlapping layers of vocals from Sampha and some of them are very soulful and clear and and you know moderately paced and others feel like stretched and warped and and you know fucked with in time you know what I mean and so there's mm -hmm. like a and so I was unsure of how to read that initially but I think that Suspended ultimately is a euphoric song. It is about, as Sampha repeats throughout the song, being lifted by the love of someone. And the later songs that I mentioned, Can't Go Back in Evidence, where initially I felt that the repetitions of Can't Go Back and the very continuous repetition of Evidence within that song felt like they were 
you know, reminders of some kind of failure. Reading what Sampas had to say about making the record has kind of reinforced for me that they are actually positive reminders. You know, when when Sampa mm-hmm. is telling himself he can't go back throughout that song, it is doing it as a way of grounding himself and reminding himself to appreciate the present as opposed to kind of being continuously barreling forward and then reflecting on, you know, what what chances he missed and what regrets he has. You know, and evidence is like it's a continuous reminder uh, when he keeps referring to evidence. It's reminding himself that all of the neuroses and self-doubts that he had they're not founded in anything when he looks for evidence all he sees is evidence that people love him and that he has um, a lot of love in his life and and it's and it's ultimately really heartwarming but also it's a process to get to that realization and and you have to kind of interrogate the songs to kind of figure out or at least i had to sort of interrogate the songs Mm -hmm kind of figure out what was Sanford doing with these um, pieces of repetition with the way that he um, not just the way that he writes, but the way that he positions and places his lyrics and his songs. That to me is a sign of any great album when I'm initially struck by a detail like that, but I don't quite understand it. And I'm able to kind of come to my own understanding of it through further pushing at it. Um, I don't know that it's true necessarily. I don't know that I'm reading the songs the way that Samva intended when he wrote them, but I don't need to know that. And it's not important that I have the truth. It's important that I have something that works for me. And that's what the album gives me at the end of the day is, is a, a portrait of domestic bliss. That's not naive. Uh, that is Mm-mm. earned hard earned by trial and tribulation. And so, in that sense, process as an album kind of makes Lahai better because it is the kind of background context that allows you to appreciate how he's gotten to this position and and, or or what he's had to overcome to get to this place um so yeah i think it's a great album i'm glad we're kind of in agreement on that because yeah i've been this has really been heavily anticipated for me and i'm just stoked that it's lived up to what i hoped it would be and surprised me in, in different ways as well Let's move on now to our second album we're going to be discussing today, which is another heavily anticipated record from an artist that this time we have reviewed before. We talked Mm -hmm. in 2021 about Lingua Ignata's staggering final album, Sinner Get Ready, which ended up being one of our most highly rated records of that year. Certainly one of our most glowing and from memory quite intensive reviews. We really kind of turned Mm -hmm. it inside out. Um, because it was an album that was so emotionally intense and volatile and and musically fascinating as all of of Kristen Hader's mm-hmm. projects are. But as Jake mentioned at the top of the video, Lingua Ignota as a moniker has been retired. And Kristen Hader has very much moved on from the darkness and what she's talked about as quite unhealthy coping that that project represented. You know, I know that that music and the music of Linguic Nota is very cathartic for a lot of people. But one thing I think that it's important to understand when contextualizing it is that while it was a for Kristen, very 
uh, necessary and powerful thing for her to do to deal with the horrific trauma that she's endured. She has been very vocal more recently that she views it as unhealthy and has no desire to kind of step back into the space that that project represents. So in rebranding as the Reverend Kristen Michael Hater, we have an entirely different vision for what Kristen is going to be going forward that nonetheless will feel very familiar in some respects to fans of her previous work and that it is very oriented around faith. It is very oriented around concepts of, of God and of religion in a specifically Christian environment uh, in a specifically Christian context. Uh, which is to say, you know, which is a very roundabout way of saying that Saved is a gospel record. It's a Southern gospel record, a, a folk gospel record, a collection of hymns. On paper, that's what it is. I mean, at least a half of this record is, you know, uh, not original material, so to speak. Uh, very old, very well known if you've grown up in a Christian environment. Some of the hymns on this record will likely be familiar to you. Um, combined with some original pieces that quite notably, I feel at least, are virtually indistinguishable from the standards. That's one of the things about this record is that, yes, there's original material and yes, there's covers, but if you're in a position like I am, where I wasn't going into this record familiar with any of the standards, I actually had to look up and see which songs were not Christians. The other defining aspect of this record, which will become very quickly apparent when you listen to it, is the specific ways in which it was recorded. Um, which is not the same as the ways that these songs were constructed and that these songs were created. That's actually a different thing to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about specifically the recording process. This is another in a long line of collaborations with Kristen's longtime creative partner, Seth Manchester. And their approach together with this project is to... Now, I don't, I, I'm speculating here. I don't know the exact motivation in terms of how they wish to make the record feel, but it seems to me that they wish to give the record the feel of something old, something unearthed, something that has been subject to decades of the natural decay of existing, that gives it a quality of, of age and an eeriness and, and, an intangibility and a kind of spectralness to it too. And that maybe sounds a bit weird, but what I mean is that the specific, very physical processes that Christian and Seth underwent with these songs once they had recorded them in order to make them sound the way they do, sound as decayed and affected and uh, warped as they do, ultimately also give the music a, an, un, an uneasy sense of being possessed in a weird way or, or having been like infected or infused with some kind of divine energy that was channeled through the songs themselves that has also kind of come to alter the recording. What they actually did was that they recorded all of these songs to tape. And then in the case of, of not necessarily every song was treated the same, but to take one example, the opening track on this record, uh, I'm Getting Out While I Can, they recorded it to tape, unspooled the tape, uh, stamped all over it, hammered it, did all kinds of things to it. Then meticulously, and if you've ever had to actually handle cassette tape reels, you'll know how painstaking this is, re 
spooled it back into the tape and then recorded it uh, digitally from there. That's one example of the kind of things that they've done with these recordings. And yeah, and I've kind of described the result already. It is a an eerie, unsettling, but emotionally truthful rendition of these ancient songs, unfiltered expressions of, of devotion and faith in God. In some ways, it feels like the logical next step for how Christian has examined or utilized the aesthetics of Christian music in the past and of Christian iconography in her writing as well. As we talked about with Sinner Get Ready, with that record and with the records previous to it as well, Kristen has utilized a lot of the language of, of servitude and devotion and faith that is a huge part of, of Christian theology. Uh, and has used it to explore, you know, aspects of power dynamics, aspects of, of abuse, aspects of uh, unhealthy relationships in general. She's drawn out all kinds of parallels, and um, it'll be too much to kind of unpack here. We've, we did a great job with our Syndicate Ready review, so go and check that out if you want more of that aspect of it. But yes, this is in some ways simpler and more single-minded in the way that it uses um, Christian iconography and um, Christian art and Christian history and, and the language of the Christian theology, um, but is also arresting and eerie and uneasy and haunting, all without ever devolving into noise or screaming or any of the kind of uh, more striking and 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 uh, unpleasant aspects of those previous records that were so powerful. Um, and yet, I still feel this is full of surprises as well. Jake, I want to turn to you at this point. Like, what was your experience with this record like? Um, and and what are your kind of overall overarching thoughts on on what Christian may be trying to do with this record and the impression that it left on you? Well, I've been a huge fan of Kristen's music ever since uh, she released Caligula in 2019, which is one of the biggest albums of that year for me personally. It's a record that felt like it kind of came out of nowhere, frankly, just because all of Kristen's tendencies as lingua ignota are very backward looking, but also like so idiosyncratic that all of her reference points combined together made this really fresh combination of sounds that really suited it to the experience of just sort of going through this song cycle of emotional brutality. And it's an album that I have a lot of uh, emotions wrapped up in from a period of my life that was much darker. I can't really listen to Caligula anymore for as much as I love that record. But from then onward, I became just as time went on, the, my fandom for Kristen just kind of snowballed, which sort of had an apex with Sinner Get Ready, where I explored that album one of my favorite records of that year, one of my favorite records of the decade so far because of how many fantastic ideas and how Kristen's very versatile writing style managed to feel like the apotheosis of everything she had been working for till then. And frankly, I think Kristen's going to go down as one of the great 
musical pioneers of the 2010s and 2020s just because that run of lingua ignata albums from 2017's let the evil of his own lips cover him to all bitches die to caligula and sinner get ready this is one of the best runs that any modern working artist has had and frankly uh, my expectations for what she did next were severely hindered because i was like i can't a expect her to keep making music like this because again, she has sort of gone on record and saying that that project is retired because she made a lot of that music when she was in a particularly bad place. And this is her turning over a new leaf. So for as much as I wanted more Lingua Ignota music, I feel like that project definitely did run its course in terms of, I don't really feel like under that name, there were many boundaries left to push. So her doing a kind of soft reset and then rebranding, changing up her sound a little bit sounded right to me but from the presentation of this alone you have this kind of really kitschy album cover that looks like it is a photograph of the actual album that looks as though it was found in like an old methodist church that burned down frankly and you have like the the emphasis that this album has on something that Kristen certainly hasn't like shied away from her interest in things like more like folk derivative music certainly came up on albums like Sinner Get Ready. But this is a full pivot into gospel and specifically Appalachian folk uh, type of music that I, being from Kentucky, am quite familiar with. Uh, so I can a speak to a bit of the authenticity of the project in terms of it, it, there's no greater endorsement for a lot of Christian's writing on here other than what you said in that the standards and her original pieces fit together as though there's no difference whatsoever. So this album has an incredible sense of cohesion, but there's also a lot going on with how she's repurposing, you know, traditional Christian gospel texts and you know weaving it into what this is supposed to be and what we have here is something that abandons a lot of the sort of death industrial harsher aspects of lingua ignota which makes sense because sinner get ready kind of shed a lot of those moments too and kind of let itself be more reserved for the vast majority of it and kind of exploded in very specific careful moments whereas this kind of peppers the disquieting discomfort throughout the entire experience in various different ways. Kristen on here, as a performer, I don't really ever think I've ever found her more captivating, which is funny just because a lot of her delivery on here is a little bit more traditional, a little bit more standard. It's less boundary pushing in terms of what she's going for with like raw performance, vocally speaking. And at first, it was something that I kind of missed when I listened to the album. That was sort of an aspect of her later records as Lingua Ignota that I valued so much is that there was a dynamism to her sound and it sort of played on that dynamic nature. And here it's not quite captured, but I feel like it's made up for in spades by just how creative this ends up being. Presentation wise, this album sounds like something that you would find in like a used bookstore for like two dollars and I mean that in the most complimentary of ways those tape effects that you mentioned are sort of scattered throughout the entire thing and there's also this absolutely 
haunting performance style that Kristen will break into where she essentially starts speaking in tongues. And these moments are deeply fucking unnerving, frankly. Like you're you're listening to this woman very believably sound like she is losing her fucking mind on here. And it sort of culminates in that last track where for like the second half of it, you just hear Kristen like quietly agonizingly sobbing and there's just there's a lot of dour content on here but i think that this is a more interesting album than a lot of people online are currently giving it credit for one of the things that i don't like about the way people talk about Kristen's music is that people talk about her as though she's kind of painted herself into a corner specifically when it comes to how she writes with her relationship to faith like a lot of people are interpreting this album as being like very purely sarcastic or venomous. And I feel like that misses the mark so, so strongly because her relationship with faith and her relationship with God has always been really thorny and really complicated in that, yes, God and the idea of the abuser, the manipulator, the person with power in a relationship are the same in Lingua Ignata's projects. But on here, it sort of shies away from Kristen's relationship with God specifically and more her relationship with faith and not that faith is some sort of prison, something that she solely turns her nose up at and I something that I don't think is sarcastic in the slightest. I think that Kristen's faith is something that she finds genuine sort of comfort and absolution in. What she's doing on here is sort of showing both sides of the coin in how it's helped her, preserved her, helped her sort of go on and carry this kind of spirit and perseverance with her, but also something that does, to some extent, hold her and many like her captive. And again, that's what I always find interesting about Lingua Ignota and Kristen's projects is that they have a kind of push and pull to what Kristen is doing from a performance standpoint. And on here, she's very much exploiting how campy her clean vocals are. And I feel like that's probably just something that if you're not a Lingua Ignota fan, that's probably an aspect that's probably going to hold you at a distance. As someone who's a big fan of Kristen, of Kristen's voice, I really like this pivot. Yes, it abandons some of the dynamism of her previous work, but I feel like that kind of stuff isn't really suited to the vision that's happening here. But I'm curious, what exactly is it on this album that, I mean, I don't know specifically what your thoughts are on this record. I know that we both like it a great deal, but in terms of what Kristen is trying to accomplish in the macro here, just because she is so often a highly interpretable artist, what do you think exactly is the goal or intent of this project walking away from it? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I love being teed. I love being teed up like that. Um, I read interviews with Kristen. She's done a few interviews uh, to promote this record, and that was really helpful for, helpful for me in terms of contextualizing where Kristen was at and the creative process. I like to have an interpretation of of a work of art before I read interviews or before I kind of read about the creative process. But for me. I didn't do that with Saved. I listened to the record once before I read the interviews. I had an idea 
of what Kristen was trying to capture in evoking these classical hymns and in presenting faith in what I would say is a kind of duality of ways, as, as a kind of genuine um, salvation and as a kind of source of threat which also cannot are not necessarily mutually exclusive as well. Like that salvation can be rooted in the sense of peril that faith also offers, right? The sense with which God is what saves you, um, but God is only able to save you by threatening you. <laughs> that That's something about the album that I, I really think is sort of the core of it is that you have Kristen on a lot of these songs, just sort of showcasing both how something has buoyed her and again saved her but also something that like just because it has helped her with this one key aspect of herself doesn't mean that it's not its own form of prison like just because it has helped her in this one respect doesn't exactly mean that she's covered like in terms of her well-being i guess so that was my initial observation upon listening to the record reading interviews with christian was really illuminating because she spoke about her belief system at this point in time and she made a very clear point of saying that she doesn't know what she believes um she once classified herself as an atheist when she was a lot younger but is now in a position where she is in a state of complete questioning with regard to that uh, and and to quote her directly, I think my work is trying very hard to engage with that question in a sort of desperate and insane way. I would really like to know what I believe, but I don't believe that I'm there yet. Uh, so where this record comes down, ultimately, in the no with the knowledge of that, is thinking about the healing process, which is the other thing that Kristen has talked about pretty heavily in the interviews surrounding this record. Yes. Drawing a line in the sand in terms of the kind of coping and the kind of processing of trauma that the Lingua Ignota project represented for her and the kind of processing of trauma and healing that she's undergoing now, which are very different. And she's talked about quite extensively the therapy that she's undergone and the healing processes and coping mechanisms that she's learned that have become a lot more adaptive and a lot more productive than the ones that she used to have, which is also aided by the fact that she's in a much more stable and safe position in her life than she used to be, even at the time where she was recording her last record. She has a lot more stability and a lot more comfort and a lot more trust in her life. And so that has provided a context for her to begin healing and developing and moving forward in a way that's actually actively healthy and not just about papering over the past or uh, finding some kind of catharsis and exercising the past, but actually productively building, you know, in the current moment and, and, and making something out of where your life is now, as opposed to kind of like looking back and trying to make something out of the past. So what saved as an album represents to me is Kristen engaging in what healing means to her and using the framework of these kind of Christian standards to explore uh, healthy healing and productive healing in the context of this questioning of faith and this questioning of belief. Um, Kristen knows in, in very productive and everyday terms has techniques and things that she does, you know, to, to be healthy and to kind of move forward and to process her trauma. 
but she lacks a clear belief system outside of these, you know, very instrumental and uh, utilitarian things that she does and, and builds her life around these routines that she has. She lacks a greater framework to contextualize all of it. And so the record, I think, is an attempt at exploring the not and again this is the thing this is a record that doesn't explore christianity necessarily it doesn't explore scripture necessarily it specifically looks at the iconography and the language of the hymn you know the way in which uh god is celebrated the way in which the salvation that the people who wrote and the people that sing these hymns in particular are searching for is some kind of grand cleansing from some kind of unknowable external force that has to be fully allowed into your life to control and decide your fate in every respect possible. And so it is Christian is it is Kristen's desire to imagine what it would be like to be able to have a belief system like that where you can give every element of your own agency up in full tra trust and faith that you will be delivered in the way that is best for you. And, you know, obviously, as represented by Kristen's continuing uncertainty about her belief, she recognizes that the flaws and the limitations in that idea and that notion, but yet through the process of healing, through the process of the fact that she you know, is in a good place, is in a productive place, is moving forward, but isn't completely healed and may never completely be healed. She has this persistent desire to, you know, explore and imagine and try to unpack, you know, the, this idealized notion of a kind of perfect divine creator who can be, you know, fully submitted to and, and fully entrusted with all parts of you. So, so to some degree, I think the power of this record is dependent on, and I say to some degree, not fully, but to some degree, the power of this record is dependent on having the context of Kristen's previous project, knowing those previous records and knowing the, I mean, the, those records went into quite explicit detail about a lot of the, you know, violent traumas that she's endured that certainly affects and impacts how I experience this record, the context this record has, the space it exists within. I can't even imagine what it would be like to listen to this if you had no idea who Kristen was, if you had yeah, no right. for the sorts of sort of art that she makes. Kristen has said that this is not in this is to be clear, this is not intended as come to Jesus music. It is not intended to be directed towards that audience. It's not intended mm -hmm. to be picked up by people looking to kind of engage in a very sort of traditional way with Christianity. It is a provocative piece of art that is intended to kind of offer a perspective on ritual worship, but yet it still adopts this framework, this iconography, this presentation in the album art and the artist name and the title that does kind of uh, entice and evoke other more straightforward, you know, uh, works of art that do exist, you know, Christian worship records. Uh, so there is an extent to which she's playing with that iconography and she's playing with the idea of presenting this in that traditional way. The album cover is beautiful, I think, because for oh yeah, it's like it looks 
like a, a fairly standard, you know, 70s era, you know, worship record, right? And the way that it's photographed as well, like, you know, like with the house, like it's a cover that someone's just taken a photo of the cover, like you'd see mm-hmm. on the discogs or something is like, you know, adds to that sense of ageness, but also just like how the, the image on the cover as well seems fairly kind of indecipherable at first, you know, vaguely theistic kind of candles, you know, a figure in worship. Um, but just the more you look at it, the more unsettling of an image it becomes, the less it makes sense, even as you're able to decipher more of it. And then it kind of makes you think about how, you know, a lot of the iconography and a lot of the aspects of the worship process are unsettling and strange and weird when viewed at from a distance like that as well. So it's a great cover in that respect. Musically, there's aspects of the record aside from the way that you know, all the post-production stuff that's been done to these songs to kind of mangle and age them. Aside That aside, there's aspects of the way that these songs are performed that very obviously situate them in a much more, in a, in a particularly, you know, intense and emotionally charged reading of the material. And there's, you know, quite obvious uh, things that are done that are reminiscent of, um, some of the musical tricks on the last Linguic Nota record, like in, uh, which song is it? I think it is, yeah, it's May This Comfort and Protect You, where you have the piano, uh, which is the foundation for most, if not all of these songs. And But you also have like the strings of the piano themselves being like kind of, you know, physically uh, manipulated through the playing of the piano like it's obviously an open grand piano but like while she's playing and the um, keys are hitting the strings you also have like the the strings themselves being themselves being kind of rubbed and manipulated and plucked and so it creates this really noisy and unpleasant treatment of the piano uh, th- there might even be some prepared piano on this record like there's points where I can't yeah. tell but you also so you have moments like that where that dissonance and that ugliness is is quite obviously trying to create a duality with the otherwise very direct uh, readings of classically written hymns. So there's moments like that where perhaps that dissonance between that darkness and the the lyricism of a song like may this comfort and protect you, which is very um, comforting, which aims to be very protective and and assuring where that dissonance does seem to be somewhat sarcastic or ironic but then there's moments like i will be with you always which is one of the most arresting pieces on the entire record a genuinely best songs she's ever written a genuinely chilling and beautiful and and wonderfully sung uh hymn of exaltation of freedom of escape acknowledgement of the darkness but of freedom from it uh it's a unbelievably striking moment right at the heart of this record that is absolutely that's the moment i think where the record really started to click for me uh i was i i do really enjoy the song that immediately precedes it as well i do mere which has a very very mm. doomy and foreboding chord progression that feels idemia in a lot of ways i think is the closest to the sorts of um piano driven folk music on some of christian's lingua ignota records just in how doomy the progression is but to me the record gets stronger as it goes 
I mentioned I will be with you always. I'm also particularly struck by the rendering of uh, the Wayfaring Stranger on this, yeah. album, which um, Christian's, Christian's made a point to say that um, most renditions of the song only incorporate the first two verses, but she's incorporated all four verses because she believes that the third and fourth verses are the best parts of this of the hymn. And when you kind of look at those verses, which which are much more about uh, finding salvation and wearing a crown of glory, finding your savior and being freed from all your trials, specifically focusing on that uh, relief and release and and absolute reward. Uh, you can see why um, Kristen is drawn to these verses in particular, because they are the ones that are most strongly about overcoming your suffering and in a lot of ways conquering it. All of this is to say that you know, there are moments on the record that are more arresting than others for me. Uh, we, I do think, you know, I've already kind of mentioned where, where there are moments where I think that the, the weird dissonance between the seemingly genuinely comforting and um, assuring uh, language of the hymns and the, the darkness and the unsettling nature of the musicianship create a clash that I don't necessarily connect with as much as the moments like I'll be with you always where the tone is much more singular, which I, where I, and I feel those moments are more powerful. And then there are moments like all of my friends are going to hell where it feels a little bit like the irony is laid on a little bit thick in terms of like how clearly campy and ridiculous Kristen finds some of this material. But all of it, the things I really like, the things that really, really strike me and the things that are less, I'm less enthusiastic about, but still like, all of that is nothing compared to the final piece on this record, How Can I Keep From Singing, which to me is the magnum opus of the album and the ultimate distillation of what I think its core message and reflection is in terms of Kristen's current state of being. The moments on this record where Kristen sings very soulfully and very beautifully and without harshness, to me, represent a kind of composure and a possession of your trials, of your trauma, a confidence over it, a kind of conquering of it, a kind of, uh, I have made it through this and I am stronger for it i feel that through the moments on this record where she is able to deliver this very assured vocal performance that is unwavering and so you get that in how can i keep from singing you get an incredibly emotionally moving but also very calm and assured performance of this hymn and you get it in tandem with this recording of Kristen speaking in tongues that you've alluded to, which increasingly comes to sort of overtake the uh, traditional singing on the song. Although for the it should be said for the vast majority of the song, the two are kind of in equal balance. And to me, this creative decision is one of the most emotionally affecting moment of the entire record because it juxtaposes this representation of productive and healthy healing of being able to have some kind of composure and confidence and stillness 
in the weight of all that you've endured that comes through in, in the more traditional vocal performance here. And the less completely uncontrolled, completely unbounded processing that Kristen's engagement with speaking in tongues represents where she and she's talked about this in interviews around the album where she would deliberately work herself through hyperventilation through put it getting Seth to play recordings of people speaking in tongues in the studio for half an hour and just blear them into her ears until she could get worked up into the state where it just came naturally out of her and so putting these two different responses to her trauma completely interlocked into this song i struggle to listen to it it's utterly overwhelming it's a complete melding of this moving forward this assuredness this confidence this sense of self-ownership that Kristen has been working towards so hard and the ever-present lingering of chaos that her previously unhealthy coping coping mechanisms and you know re just responses in the wake of her trauma will always kind of represent will always be lingering you know for Kristen at least how I read this finale there will always be a part of Kristen that has this assuredness and the safety that she has learned through healing and this chaos of complete um submission to being controlled by a, a force outside of yourself both of those things exist together and that's the dichotomy that Kristen has written and composed and conceived this album from and it's the dichotomy that flows through all of it but it's uh, specifically is at its most powerful here um so honestly like yeah if, if the album were were if the rest of the album went away and i just had that final track i think i would have the same impression that the whole album gives me which again is not to discredit the rest of the album which i think is wonderful uh there's other songs i love that i haven't even mentioned yet like the the penultimate track i know his blood can make me whole, uh, yeah. which yeah. is i think stunning in its own right as well there's plenty of songs on the record that work as a part of that wider thesis but just I, I really have to emphasize how utterly bowled over and, and physically and psychologically leveled I was by that finale. It just, it just, I wasn't expecting it. It came out of nowhere. The simplicity of it is so much of its devastation. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, it's another wonderful, exhausting album from Kristen Hader that I'm incredibly appreciative of and that I'll value greatly. Um, she is one of our, most arresting and unique artists that kind of contradiction that you highlighted in the last track is something that really struck me as well because it's it boils down to the refrain of the song which is how can i keep from singing it's like this notion that Kristen has in many ways been saved or experienced some form of relief but singing the act of putting her pain into her art is something that she still nonetheless feels an innate like calling towards how can i keep from singing it's like with all of this because i am his and that makes all of these things mine 
that means that I am compelled to do this. And I feel like it's a pretty interesting statement on where she is as an artist and how she feels about the things that she makes. And it's something that kind of further illuminates the sort of use and practicality of this project. And, you know, the only point at which I might disagree with anything that you said is that even moments like um, the... I guess relatively more one-dimensional uh, songs on here, like All My Friends Are Going to Hell, is that I still never read them as purely sarcastic or purely as admonishments, I guess. It, there's always something that, like, on that, I feel like that song is specifically about highlighting perceived hypocrisies within those who have, you know, a, a specific faith. And it's supposed to serve, I guess, a, like a greater piece of the puzzle of the portrait of what faith is to Kristen, but also what she perceives faith to be in others. And I feel like these elements, like in a vacuum, they might be one dimensional, but in the context of the album as a whole, it feels like she's going a little bit wider than just maybe the immediate things that appeal to herself. Uh, and I, I find this aspect to be continually reinforced throughout the track list over and over and over again. A lot of the stuff on here is definitely a little bit different than the stuff that she made before, but there's a lot of moments on here still that I feel like wouldn't be out of place on Sinner Get Ready as like a Pennsylvania furnace style, more reserved kind of cut, um, particularly with, I mean, I agree, the two best songs on here, are How Can I Keep From Singing and I Will Be With You Always. For me personally, uh, I Will Be With You Always in particular being one of my favorite things that I think that she's ever made. This encounter that she has with with this spiritual being, this sort of like she perceives it as a demon, but they, you know, say that they're an angel. It could be an act of somebody trying to fool her or, a you know, a being trying to sort of take over her. But at the same time, there's a sort of verisimilitude and not clearly defining what the being she's communing with is and that it could be both it could be neither and that is the sort of key to why i think i specifically latch onto Kristen's interpretation of faith is that the both of us have a background of being exposed to a little bit more fundamentalist aspects of religion and what have you and then we've grown into a more complicated place later in life and what i love about it is that these are specifically very agnostic kind of viewpoints where it's not about necessarily proving something to someone else or or trying to kind of like race points about something but to explore the inherent contradiction of not knowing something as to whether or not something is there some kind of greater force but also not rejecting the notion entirely and that's kind of why she keeps revisiting and mining this idea of god as like a really more malleable interesting force uh, and I feel like this sort of presentation suits that so well. It's a thing that I feel like might come across as kitschy in lesser hands or may be like it, it's something that could appear disingenuous to people. But to me, this is one of Kristen's least guarded releases. It's one of her most accessible, even though I do think it definitely heavily relies on context. In a vacuum, it's definitely a little bit easier to swallow than uh, everything that came before it. But it's still something that turns over a new leaf for her, but also doesn't abandon continuity at all. Uh, which makes it satisfying to follow as a fan. 
And I think maybe the only overriding complaint I have with the experience is that all of the sort of production tinkering that she does throughout the record, I really like this aspect. And I really also wish that there was more of it. A, a lot of these effects are really more prominently featured in kind of the front half of the album. Uh, at least there are sort of more subtle ways. Like I think of uh, like how subtly detuned the piano is on basically every single track here. Uh, but it's those moments where I feel like I'm the most immersed in this, like as an experience rather than just like an album full of songs. And I do feel like this album sort of does get there as being like a fully transportative thing, but I do feel like she could capitalize on it further. And I hope it's something that she uses on projects down the line and maybe commits to a little bit more as an aesthetic choice. Because what I think is great about this new thing is that aesthetic synergy that she has in the presentation of the album, in the album artwork and the content in which she's delivering everything. It feels like she's just taking full advantage of everything that could come from her having a new phase of her career. So it's exciting to witness as a fan of hers. And it also opens the door for a ton of creative possibilities. Like maybe she never makes anything that sounds like those traditional Lingua Ignata albums again. But to me, this is an album is a resounding sign that she has basically no limits, that the only thing keeping her from doing or exploring a given sound or idea is herself and her own whim. And that's why I love Kristen so much is that she is an artist who fundamentally feels like that she couldn't exist at any other moment in alternative music than right now, where there is an audience who's willing to meet her and to engage with all of her stuff and to allow this insanely sort of off the beaten path aesthetic that is in no way inviting, that's taking from like, again, Appalachian folk music. This is not something that your everyday listener is going to be familiar with. And I mean, even if you are, you could still be off put by just again, how campy Kristen's presence is, by how full throttle she is to committing to all of this, but still it just sort of reaffirms my faith in her as being one of the most interesting people in music today. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our two conversations today about the new albums from Samfa Lahai and the Reverend Christian Michael Hader, Saved. Let us know what you think of either of these albums in the comments below. What did you think? Do you agree or disagree with our interpretations? Do you have anything you want to add in terms of talking about what works or doesn't work about these albums for you? Let us know in the comments below so we can continue the conversation. If you want to go above and beyond and support us directly for just $1 a month, you can become a member of the Jams and Tea family by hitting the join button just down there. You will get yourself entitled to certain perks. You'll get your name featured in the title call of every video on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us some music to listen to and talk about on one of our now episodes, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile. Until next time, though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago, all state. You're in good hands. <laughs>